and welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm Marva Hinton. Today I'm meeting virtually with Zaina Arafat from her home in Brooklyn. Zaina's award-winning debut novel, You Exist Too Much, came out in paperback this past summer. It tells the story of a young, bisexual, Palestinian-American woman who is desperate to find love and a place to call home. The novel won a 2021 Lambda Literary Award, and Roxane Gay called it her favorite book of 2020. In addition to being a novelist, Zaina also writes nonfiction and teaches creative writing at Barnard College. She has an MFA from Iowa and an MA from Columbia. Zaina, thanks so much for coming on to talk about your work. Thanks so much for having me. Your protagonist in You Exist Too Much is such an interesting character. We see her dealing with so much. She has a strained relationship with her mother who is abusive and doesn't accept her daughter being queer. She becomes obsessed with women she can't have. She's a really bad girlfriend to a woman who loves her. She's anorexic. She uses drugs and drinks too much. She's promiscuous and she can be mean. But she's also a really talented writer and a great DJ who can be incredibly kind and thoughtful. How did she first come to you? So, uh, great question. I was um, in the first place interested in this question around unattainability and why it is that things that are off in the distance can often be more appealing than what's right in front of you. And so in exploring that question, I initially located it in unrequited love. And I, through that, created this character of um, this closeted Palestinian-American woman who was setting her sights on women that were unattainable to her. either they were straight or they were married or there was a professional boundary. And so instead of appreciating, you know, the person that she was with, she was constantly fantasizing about the person that she wasn't with. And that could lead to some really bad behaviors. Um, And the added dimension of her Palestinian Americanness came from, well, both the fact that I myself am Palestinian American and have, you know, really longed to see um, queer Arab characters reflected in literature. And so that was one, you know, motivation for adding that dimension to her. But also that cultural in-betweenness was also something that spoke to that question of unattainability, where she was sort of in between cultures and really wanting to attain like a full sense of belonging to her Middle Eastern heritage, but unable to do so by virtue of those sort of cultural ambiguities that come with being a first generation American. Um, And, you know, her mother is of the immigrant generation and she sees her mother as someone who really embodies that culture. And so she really wants to attain both her mother's affection, but also her mother's sort of like cultural status and heritage. And, um, And so, yeah, I mean, I think that thinking through that lens of unattainability allowed me to sort of refract this character and um you know i think the fact of you mentioned you know she can be she can be engaged in really destructive behaviors both in love and in you know her own just sort of you know life and a lot of that stems from this added dimension of her being in the closet and being queer but sort of for various reasons um unable to really embrace that identity and a lot of the internalized homophobia sort of manifests in these really ugly ways which is real, you know, um, as in like, that's a real 
unfortunate consequence at times of, of internalized homophobia is that it can lead to some really just um, painful behavior that can hurt a person. <laughs> so yeah, and the person, people around them. At least that's been the case in my experience and the experiences I've, I've witnessed around me, so. Well, as you mentioned, we really see her struggling to find her place. You know, she is called a terrorist by some of her classmates when she's a child. And mm -hmm. when she travels to Jordan to be with her extended family, some of her relatives there don't accept her. Yeah. She, you know, she's just sort of marginalized wherever she goes. So yeah. for you as a writer, was it difficult to write someone who navigates life this way that she doesn't ever find, or it's very difficult to find where she belongs? Yeah. I mean, so first of all, as a writer, I think, I think many writers can relate to that feeling of like feeling on the outside of things because, you know, part of, I think what drives, at least for me, for example, growing up, being an outsider, being in between cultures, being queer, led me to feel, you know, I was on the outside of the sort of majority in many ways. And, and as a way to mitigate that pain, I started writing my observations. And, you know, you sort of see things differently when you're on the outside than if you're fully immersed in a thing and you have this sort of unique perspective. So when it came to creating a character who was very marginalized and alienated, that was uh, not, it was, it was fun to do because it was something that I had myself sort of experienced, but also it, it led me to just sort of think about the different, what that actually looks like. Like she's a DJ and that in itself is a sort of alienating, you know, she sort of in being marginalized in her various identities, it leads her to sort of continue that marginalization, like by choosing a profession, like being a DJ, where you're on your own sort of timeline that's different than everybody else, where you're sort of up all night when everybody's sleeping and sleeping during the day when everyone's doing normal things and kind of like in a booth by yourself um, at a party. So I, I, you know, I, it was hard to watch the ways in which she, she's also like very alienated from a queer community and sort of lurking you know, lurking and trying to find one, but feeling afraid to do so. And so it was painful to watch her marginalization, but also interesting to think about and think about how, you know, that contours one's decision-making as well when you find yourself in marginalized spaces and, um, and, and trying to find your way out of them. Was this always going to be a first-person account? No, actually, I, I, interestingly enough, initially wrote it as a third person account. And that was interesting because it gave me a lot of room to sort of move within the minds of other characters. And, um, and then through my workshops in graduate school and my MFA, you know, students were like, it feels like there's an artificial distance that exists with this third person. Why not try writing in the first person? So I did. And it felt I, it felt like I could create more of a space between the writers, op, between the the narrators, you know, like persona and their inner consciousness in some way. And I could fill that space with sort of introspection and depth. And so I ended up writing it and keeping it in the first person when I tried it that way. I really, I think it worked better for what this book was. So my next book is definitely in the third person because I don't know if there's something about first person that feels a little too intimate, but still good for the purposes of this book. It seems like sometimes also when a writer writes in first person, it's 
confusing for some writers. I mean, excuse me, confusing for some readers for some reason that they begin to conflate the character with the author. And I know that you have a lot of things in common, but obviously she's not you. Right. How have you navigated that part of this? Well, it's interesting because so the things that I share with the with the character are her identity markers, the fact that she's Palestinian American, the fact that she's queer, the fact that um, she grew up yeah between cultures and is a uh, first generation American with immigrant parents. But like <laughs> her patterns are behavior, her patterns of behavior are not ones that I identify with, um, fortunately, but. I, I think I feel tremendous empathy for her. And I, I had to really excavate her inner consciousness in order to allow her to go to those places because I, I think there are aspects of that inner consciousness that I can also identify with. I mean, the path to coming out for me was not easy. And I certainly experienced a lot of internalized homophobia and shame. And so sort of taking aspects of the queer experience of the you know first generation immigrant experience and blending them with this character while also allowing her to forge her own path and you know go down avenues that i you know that are not anything i've ever gone through myself but seeing where those lead and um was just an interesting process and I never, when I was writing it, worried about whether the reader would conflate the character with myself, just because it seemed so, un because we are so different. But I see how with a first person narrator that happens. And I just sort of, I, I can accept that that might be a, one interpretation. I find it frustrating that oftentimes, you know, I think it's especially true with when with women characters female characters and authors that there's an assumption that there's like oh the character is, is the writer i don't know why that is but um anyway so yeah <laughs> throughout this novel we never learned the protagonist's name yeah. why did you choose to keep that um to yourself well, I initially had a name for her and then I, so the book is called, you know, you exist too much. And essentially it's a, it's a line spoken to the mother, um, spoken by the mother to the narrator. And when you tell someone you exist too much, you're essentially saying you should exist less. And part of this narrator's plight is going from a place where she feels like she has to make herself small, take up as little space as possible, which she does by sort of asymmetrically pouring herself into relationships where the other person can't or doesn't love her back. Um, but another way for her to exist less was to just literally have no name and to exist less on the page. And so that is a, that was a conscious decision and a sort of homage to that quote of like, you exist too much, you know, to that command basically of you should exist less. So yeah, and there are some chapters or some you know certain narratives in within the novel where she doesn't even have any like direct quotes it's just her being like acted upon and spoken to and so that sort of goes along with that having no name throughout this novel which is told in a series of vignettes we see your protagonist traveling all over the world and the story actually begins with her at 12 in bethlehem she is walking around uncovered and some men let her know that what she's doing is forbidden. She is forbidden. Her developing body is a problem. Why did you want to start her story this way? 
Yeah, so that opening, as you just have described it, I think captures a lot of the themes that get explored throughout this book, which are of, I mean, first and foremost, they are of, uh, they speak to that pain and awkwardness that comes with being culturally in between, um, in the sense that, you know, because she is not fully Arab, she doesn't know that when you're traveling around Bethlehem, visiting like, you know, biblical sites, the, the cultural expectation is that you don't wear shorts, you cover your legs if you're a woman. And she doesn't know that. And it leads to a rather humiliating, but funny situation. I wanted to sort of also bring humor into this as well. And, you know, pain, can, I had a professor once who said, pain in writing can be funny, can be hilarious. And so I took that sort of awkwardness and pain and tried to make it humorous as well. Um, in that opening scene. So it deals with that cultural ambiguity and it also deals with the narrator's sort of um, struggles around I, like sexuality and gender and, you know, um, kind of coming into her own as a, as a woman and coming into her sexual identity. And in that moment sort of, um, there's some insights in that scene that kind of challenge the sort of heteronormative, gender normative, patterns that um that that then therefore impact a lot of her adult life so yeah that's why that scene that scene for me you know in choosing where to place that scene it felt right to be right there at the opening because of how it sort of set up the central tensions of the novel during that trip at 12 this is when she starts to realize she's never going to be like her mother, who always seems to fit in and always knows what to do. Uh, as you mentioned, her mother is the one who tells her, you exist too much. Mm -hmm. uh, what is it about that mother-daughter relationship that made you really want to explore it and really dig into that here with the novel? Well, the, um, I mean, the, okay, great question. So as I mentioned, there's a, I, you know, I located that question of unattainability and unrequited love and this narrator constantly setting her sights on unattainable women. And in a way, the mother, all of these relationships with these women, that these asymmetrical relationships, they all sort of orbit around the central relationship in her life, which is between her and her mother. And I think so many of our relationships are patterned along our relationships with our parents, interestingly. But so for that reason, that central relationship of mother-daughter, you know, had to be the kind of through line of the novel. And it also encapsulated that cross-cultural tension and that divide between immigrant generation and first generation and what that really looks like. And it also just sort of spoke to the psychological quest this narrator is on for affection and approval. And where does that sort of derive? I think it, a lot of it derives from her relationship with her mother and how that's how love and affection and approval have manifested in that relationship, how that affects all her other relationships. So yeah, it was, it, it, I mean, readers are, and, and it was such a, I feel like the mother character is so larger than life and so over just sort of daunting and overbearing in, in just the right way that um, I had to, I mean, I myself was just so drawn to the mother character, which is part of why it was such a sort of central tension or central relationship in the book. Well, although the majority of this story is told from the narrator 
the uh, young woman's point of view, mm -hmm. there is one section that tells the mob story. Yeah. Um, this third person account explains a lot about how the mom became the abusive woman we see through her daughter. Why did you decide to include this section? I felt so uh, another one of the narrators, if, if I think of the book along some like certain trajectories, one of them is going from a place of feeling like she's not, you know, she can't exist in her own right and has to take up less space to going to a place where she feels that she can. Another is going from a place of hurt and anger at the hands of the mother to empathy and compassion. And in order for that to happen, I felt we needed to have a chapter from the mother's perspective that showed the mother's backstory and gave us some insight into who she is, you know, because at the end of the day, I mean, she's just a person trying to do her best in the world in some sense, right? So that felt really important for creating empathy for the mother, compassion, giving her her own sort of platform as a human being to tell a, and a character in the book to like have a backstory and be three-dimensionalized outside of just the way that the narrator regards her and sees her and views her. So that's why that chapter exists. Um, yeah, and it's placed where it is in the book, kind of later in the book. After your narrator's life takes a really destructive turn, we see her going for treatment at a place called The Lodge, where she's diagnosed with love addiction and realizes mm -hmm. she has a lot in common with other addicts. During this part of the novel, we learn a lot about her childhood and the way she's been hurt and the ways she's hurt others. Why did you want to tell part of her story through the frame of something similar to a 12-step program? Well, first of all, I was just interested in that trope or like the sort of re rehab and recovery and sort of playing with that a little bit and challenging that cyclical, that like sort of cycle of like recover of like rehab and then relapse and then recovery and just thinking about it in a more complex way and questioning whether recovery is even like to what extent that's possible. And then second of all, I just thought it was a, a great sort of space from which to then echo out from and to sort of flash back into other moments in the narrator's life while doing this like very present day work of excavating why it is that she is the way she is. And I mean, that's a lot of what this book is about. It's about just sort of like how, why, like how moments in our past in like, whether we realize it or not, often we don't, um, how they have such bearing on our present day selves. And so a lot of that um, exploration happens in this section where we where we get present day moments that then dip into, then we immediately sort of flash into a moment from the past. It's meant to sort of shed light on why it is that she behaves in this particular way in this moment. And also like, as I mentioned, she's really alienated, um, has no sort of community in her life. And in an interesting way, she's able to find that in unlikely in the unlikely place of being in a treatment center, which she at first is really sort of cynical about and resistant to. And then, you know, finds that it is a place of coming together with others that she really needs. I'd like to now talk a little bit about the things that you like to read. Uh, do you have any books that you see yourself returning to again and again? Uh, I call them go-to books. Uh, if you do have some of those, what would you say would be your top three? I guess Orientalism by Edward Said, which is 
a hugely important text to me that I constantly return to. Um, and then uh, Maggie Nelson's blue work in general, I mean, bluettes in particular, I love to return to. I just love the sort of style of that book and the tone and, and just the sort of like wisdom <laughs> and it's gorgeous. And then let's see, what's another book that I return to again and again? I guess I often return to, funny enough, just thinking, I wish I had my bookshelf right in front of me. I don't, but um, uh, I've been returning to Ben Lerner's Leaving the Atocha Station quite a bit. I love that book because it's just very much a sort of psychologically rich um, and like humorous, sardonic and sort of sarcastic, but yet like I think really clever and, and sort of empathetic in some way a novel that, um, that, that, has influenced me in its in in the way of just being really character driven and just watching a character's sort of psychology manifest in different funny scenarios. So those are three books that come to mind right off the top of my head without my bookshelf in front of me so that I can be like, oh yeah, and that one too, and that one too, and that one too. Well, what about your favorite novel to teach? Mm. Good question. What is my favorite novel to teach? Um, hmm, I'm thinking for a second. The, I mean, I, I as 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 maybe this is maybe boring of an answer and a little too, but I love to teach Madame Bovary because I just absolutely love the character of Madame Bovary, and I love the way Flaubert uses um, the narrator to sort of poke fun at all the characters in the book and sort of point out the absurdity and ridiculousness of their behaviors. And I think it's, and, and she's just such a rich character that it's just shock, it can remain shocking to me that she's been created by a, a, a male writer. But I, I think that's a book that I love to teach because there's just so much to explore in it. And so much that I, every time we teach it, it I see different things. Well, let's talk about now a book maybe you don't like so much. Mm -hmm. uh, do when, when you think about that, maybe a book that everyone else seems to love or, or critics seem to love, but you just can't get into it. Do you have anything that comes to mind for that? Oh my goodness. That's such a tough question. I honestly just think I can't say that because then I would be, I would be like, what's the word? Um, I'm sure there are books that I've pretended to like because I really respect the author, but I don't love the book necessarily. Um, I, I, I can't think of, I, I genuinely can't think of a book right now that comes to mind in that category. I really don't like <laughs> books by D.H. Lawrence. I mean, that's I just find him like really problematic, but like, uh, that's a boring answer too, because that's not contemporary. But if I have any contemporary books that I don't like that come to mind that are like widely loved, I will, I will tell you. Okay, okay. Right now, nothing well, is coming to my mind. Um, well, it doesn't have to be, though. It didn't have to be contemporary. It could be even one of the, you know, a so-called classic that right. doesn't yeah. resonate. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I really, I, I seriously, D.H. Lawrence comes to my mind because I was, I had to take a class where we read like mostly D.H. Lawrence and I was just like sickened by it. <laughs> and it's like, how is this? Don't get this. But anyway, found it very problematic. Readers in the U.S. are sometimes accused of reading too narrowly. Um, 
if you could give some recommendations of maybe some Palestinian readers that you think people in the U.S. should be reading and should know, but maybe don't. Yeah, um, let's see here. So one really, really great Lebanese writer who recently passed away, but um, who is just someone I feel like everyone should have on their bookshelves is Ethel Adnan. Uh, she wrote poetry, but she also wrote like prose nonfiction and she's just brilliant. Um, she was just brilliant. And then absolutely like Edward Said, if you haven't read Edward Said, I think it's just essential reading because he just explores like cultural paradigms and sort of power structures. And it's just incredibly remains really relevant, even though the book the Orientalism and much of his other work has been written over the second half of the 20th century. And so, but it still remains in, incredibly applicable. I think other, like Renda Gerard, if you haven't read her work, she's great. She's a, another, she's a Palestinian, uh, queer Palestinian writer. Um, and then let's see here, who else? George Abraham, he's a wonderful Palestinian poet. Um, he's he's a, a contemporary author. Zain Jukadar, she is a Syrian author who has a couple, she has a, her latest book, I think it's called The Map of the, what is it called? Um, I don't remember the exact title, but her name is Zain Jukadar and she create, her latest book, uh, the, the, the narrator is trans and it's a really, really interesting um, sort of exploration of culture and um, sexuality and transness. So yeah, those are some suggestions. Well, what are you reading right now? Right now, I am reading um, the, what I'm reading, I'm actually reading Kristen Arnett's With, uh, With Teeth. She's a queer Floridian writer, and she, uh, we were just on a panel at the Miami Book Fair, and I loved her first novel, and I'm now sort of deep into her second novel, and it's really, really good. And then I'm also reading a book called Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder, which is about a woman who turns into a dog during the first year of motherhood, so highly recommend it yeah and what about your own work what are you working on right now i'm working on an essay collection and another novel um and the other novel is sort of set between europe and um the middle east versus rather than the states in the middle east it's very different than this first one and it deals with visual art versus and um and yeah it's sort of more of a mystery so that's what i'm working on where can people find you online if they want to know more about you and keep up with what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a Twitter. Uh, it's at Zaina Arafat, um, my first name and my last name. And then I have a website, www.zainaarafat.com. And then I think I'm on Instagram, but I use that less. It's Zaina A-R-A. So that's my handle. So those are the, yeah, I'd say Twitter and my website are the best places because the website has only a lot of writing that I've done and than Twitter. I always tweet my stuff too. So, <laughs> Okay. Well, Zaina Arafat, I just want to thank you so much for coming on to talk about your work. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. You can find out how to win a free copy of You Exist Too Much on our website, readmorepodcast.com. 
And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. As she mentioned, uh, back in November, Zaina was one of the many authors who participated in the Miami Book Fair. You can learn more about the fair at miamibookfair.com. You can also support Zaina and the show through buying her novel on our site. Please follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again next time for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton reminding you to read more.